Welcome to the Fuji Love Podcast. Today's guest is Take Kayo, aka Big Head Taco, a Vancouver photographer, camera gear reviewer, YouTuber, photography instructor, and writer, and a lot more. It might be easier to ask Take what he has not done in the photo industry than otherwise. First things first, Take, welcome to the Fuji Love Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jens. This is uh, a lot of fun. At least I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Hello, Fuji lovers. This is Jens Krauer. Today's episode is sponsored by Exposure X3, the advanced photo editor from Alien Skin Software. Exposure is a superb choice for Fujifilm photographers. It provides exceptional Fujifilm raw processing quality as well as creative editing, retouching and special effects that are unmatched by other photo editors. All edits are non-destructive. Using Exposure is easy thanks to its fast, intuitive workflow. There is no subscription required, so once you buy it, you own it forever. Exposure is Fujilove's photo editor of choice. Visit Alienskin.com and try it free today. Save 10% when you purchase using the coupon code Fujilove. Let me ask you the, the first question. Who is Take Kayo? Who is, who is, thank you for not asking me who is Big Head Taco. So Take Kayo. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you that a bit <laughs> later on, but we start with your real life persona, I thought. Yeah, I, um, I started photography... I wouldn't say late, but in terms of I've taken pictures my whole life and I have mentioned it in one of my articles as like an archiver. I, I always had um, diaries. I always had daily planners. I would write down what I did every day, what I ate, you know, who I hung out with. And when I had finally my father let me have a camera uh, when I was in high school, I would just take pictures of everything. So as a photographer, initially, I was an archiver. There was no art to it or anything. It's just to remember places I was, remember the things I ate, remember the people who I was with. It was only until uh, my last sort of two semesters at university that I discovered photography as a way to express myself artistically. And up to that point, I had used music and writing as, as a sort of a channel to to express myself and tell stories. And then I realized, oh, I could do the same thing with photography. And that's when I shifted my entire life uh, sort of direction. Cause I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an educator at school at, at a university level. I wanted to be a professor. And then when I discovered uh, photography, I, I thought, well, I wanna be a photographer. And that was really the catalyst that started me down this rabbit hole that's been the last 25 years of, of uh, in the photo industry. So would you say that all your, your creative passions started centering around photography at that point in time? At that time, because it was it was kind of a eureka moment, it was also kind of a, yeah, it was, I, out of all of my, I mean, let me just think, let me just think about this. I think music is probably the strongest emotional connection I have in terms of, storytelling and communication and and self-expression music is probably stronger but i think and then for and writing is probably the most articulate and i think photography sort of in the middle it's both it's both emotional and articulate so it's probably the most pragmatic it doesn't sound it doesn't sound romantic but it probably is the most pragmatic way for me to express myself artistically and as well in terms of I would say career-wise, you know, if I had to choose between being a musician, a writer, or a photographer, I think it's more pragmatic to be a photographer. So uh, that's where I ended up putting 80, 90% of my energy into photography because I realized 
it was the most pragmatic, the most efficient, the most fluid way for me to tell stories and express myself uh, artistically. Now, I, sh I share your approach. I, I always tend to say that photography for me is an aggregator. It's like it, it helps me to, to center a lot of things around it and give them kind of a reason. Would you would you agree with that? For sure. For sure. And, and I think that's when I started writing for Fuji Love. Like I had my own. I started off as a as a as a blog and then I started doing gear reviews and I started doing YouTube videos. And when I started doing podcasts, I realized, wow, like even just speaking is another way for me to articulate what's in my brain and i actually really enjoy podcasting and i enjoy that as just another form of communication and another another form of storytelling and and now that we're doing this i think i can articulate myself better probably like this than even photography although i'm not sure how pragmatic this is at this time we'll find out how pragmatic this podcast is going to be <laughs> um I want to ask you, like, online, a lot of people know you as Big Head Taco. Now, before we dive into anything else, what is the story behind that name? So I had a, I still have a, a good friend of mine, a very witty friend of mine, and we connect because of our love for music. And we do this thing, I guess, I guess rappers do it, where they diss each other, they try to one-up each other. And we were making up names, just funny names for each other. And there is a Vancouver band called, at least there was, called Big Head Todd and the Monsters. And I have a couple of their records and I have a couple of their CDs. And my my buddy, so my name Take is always, growing up, is always mispronounced. I was called Taki. Taki is probably the most common mispronunciation of my name in English, in English languages. People call me Taki. So if someone says Taki, I know that they're from elementary school or high school. And then when I got to university, I insisted I would correct everyone and get it as close as possible to Take. And uh, but, you know, when I was at Kodak and I was taking orders over the phone, I never knew what they were calling me because a lot of the lab owners were immigrants. You know, they were Chinese, they were Indian, they were from Europe. And so you kind of think, you know what they're calling you. And so one of them, they were calling me Taxi. Like, you know, when you get a taxi cab, because when he faxed me once, it says to taxi. I'm like, oh, he's calling me taxi. Uh, some people call me Tucket. You know, same thing. I say on the phone, my name is Take. And they say, oh, okay, Tucket. And I'm thinking, okay, that's close. And then they fax me and they're spelling like bucket, but with a T, Tucket. So my name was always mispronounced. My buddy Jake and I we were just making fun of my name. And he just said as a joke, big head taco. And then when, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, I love that, Jake. I'm taking it and I'm not paying for it. And he said, go ahead. And it was just kind of a joke. And I said, no, no, no. And our wives were with us. And I said, Jake, I said, in front of our wives, you are now allowing me to have Big Head Taco as a name. If I ever start a company, if I ever use it for anything, I don't owe you anything. Maybe lunch or dinner, which I've already bought him. But other than that, I don't owe you anything. He said, yeah, it's yours. You could do whatever you want. And little did he know what I would do with that name. And that's really the story behind I didn't even come up with the name. So it actually became your, your trademark. I mean, on your homepage, you even have kind of a, a rapper short name. It's the BHT, right? Yeah, because, you know, everything's into acronyms, right? Like KFC. And I know kids that don't even know what KFC stands for, you know. And, and so I thought, oh, you should probably shorten it because it's kind of a long, like even... Um, uh, bare naked ladies. That's another. Like I also one of the reasons why we were making up these weird names is because we thought about bands that had funny names, and sometimes they become so 
synonymous with themselves that you realize like, wow, Bare Naked Ladies is a dumb name. But after a while, you just forget the name and it just becomes B&L. And that's another reason why I thought, oh, like bands can make acronyms for their names. I thought I would just make an acronym for myself and make it BHT. And it did become your your main name, I guess. You're more known by that. Now you you mentioned before Kodak. Um, as we said, you worked 25 years in the in the photographic industry, and Kodak was kind of your your entry point. Did you seek out to work for Kodak, and it, did it like push your passion, or was it like working at Kodak that kind of pushed you into photography more? So when I was at university, all my, you know, like seeking out work after university, nothing was lined up for photography. Because as I said, it was like one or two semesters before I graduated. And so once I graduated, I had absolutely no connections in the industry other than retail. You know, all the camera shops that I haunted knew who I was. But I realized that, and I usually recommend this to anyone, even today, who wants to get into any industry, into music, into photography. I tell them, if you want connections in the industry, don't work retail, you know, because retail, it, there's an advantage of working there. But, you know, instead of working at a camera store, work for a manufacturer, work for Fujifilm, work for Kodak, work for, you know, the major brands, work for Sony corporate so that you have an opportunity to meet the president of the company or to meet the director of marketing. You know, so when when I was looking for work in the photo industry, Kodak was sort of like what Walmart or Amazon is today. They were just everywhere. You know, they were the largest photo brand in the world. And so I sought out to work for them, knowing that if I wanted to make connections in the industry, it had to be with one of the big, at least the big two, either Kodak or Fujifilm. And so there was an office here in Vancouver and decided to apply to work there. And what did you do there? Um, I started off sweeping the warehouse. That was the entry point. Uh, into the company. And when I left, I was a Western Canada regional manager. Wow. And that's after 10 years. I actually got the position, I think, after five years. I quit temporarily because I got tired of working there. And I ended up working at a couple of photo labs. I ended up doing a little bit of retail, but I was there to learn how to run the one-hour machine. And then I started working at a pro lab. And then during that time, they asked me to come back and run it. And then so I decided to go back again. I was there for another five years. And this is, you know, between 95 and 2005. So that last five years of 2000, 2005 was pretty much decimated. Digital was decimating the, the film. And I was in the, the photo finishing pro film wholesale division. And so, uh, you know, sales was dropping by 30% a year. So it was a depressing time to be uh, at Kodak. And at the same time, I realized it was a corporate job. As, as fun as it was rubbing shoulders with in, industry insiders, I had more fun talking with the pro photographers and the lab techs. And so I realized like this wasn't the right place for me to be. So that was another reason why I quit. Yeah, I can very well relate to that as I came from the corporate world and actually quit for for similar reasons. Um, so what happened uh, after, you, after you left? How did you become then Big Hat Taco leaving from Kodak? So, so during the time... I was at Kodak. I also was a, a, a freelance photographer, and and I and I tell people I got this work ethic. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, an, an immigrant work ethic, but my father had two completely different careers. 
during the day, he was the general manager of a travel agency, you know, multiple locations, 20-something locations across Western Canada. And at night, he ran a home clinic doing physiotherapy, this, this, this theory that he had invented uh, with his grandfather when he was young. And it's been a lifelong pursuit of his. And that was something that he wanted me to become. He wanted me, me to be a doctor with him. And so, you know, two completely contrasting careers. And so to me, I always thought that was normal to have two jobs. I thought it was normal to work 70, 80 hour weeks. And so you, you, I hustled 40, 50 hours at Kodak. And then I had another 30, 40 hours a week that I would do commercial photography. I would do weddings. I would do portraiture. I used to shoot for the pro in, in Vancouver here, the BC Lions, the CFL, the football league. I, I was the official field photographer for them. So I actually shot for the team. I wasn't shooting for a newspaper or anything like that. And um, and then I would haunt all the camera stores, all my friends' own labs. So I would go to the back and and you know like try to print my own pictures. I was taking night courses at a local college to do darkroom stuff. And so I just immersed myself into the into the industry. So when I quit Kodak, I also quit being a commercial photographer. I actually got sick and tired of shooting for other people. You know, when I was shooting football, I wanted to actually shoot the bench. I wanted to shoot the anguish of the players that were on the bench. I actually found that more interesting than what was happening on the field. Because in football, they wear, they wear masks. They wear helmets. You don't see their faces. And so I actually enjoyed that. But the team was like, we're not interested in those type of shots. When you shoot weddings, the trend at the time was not black and white and was not uh, editorial style. It was more very posed pictures. And I hated that. And I was begging my clients to let me take editorial style. And they said, no, I was begging to shoot black and white film. And they said, no. And so I got tired of not being able to do what I wanted. And it wasn't what I thought it would be. The corporate world wasn't what I thought it would be. Shooting for clients wasn't what I thought it would be. So I completely quit both my commercial photography work and the corporate work. And I spent the next, I would say, seven years, um, my in terms of work, it was dormant, but I was still heavenly, heavenly. I was heavily into the photography industry. I was looking at Steve's. I can't remember all the websites at the time on on photography, but I was going deep into it, making sure I knew um, what cameras were coming out, what was trending. I would still haunt all the camera stores, and because you know they were again all my friends, so I was still shooting. But I was sitting back and watching to see where the industry was moving. And then Big Head Taco came up eventually when I said, okay, now it's time for me to get back into the industry again, but on my own terms, doing my own things, doing it my own way. Well, that's that's a kind of a similar approach a lot of photographers have I talked to. We recently interviewed uh, Damien Lovegrove in New York. And he also mentioned that he thinks the biggest privilege as a photographer actually is to be able to do what you want. So it's not necessarily success and riches, but the freedom to execute your own ideas and your kind of own concepts. Yeah, for sure. And and that's where uh, I've, I've told people, when people ask me, you know, what do I do for a living? I, I usually just say, oh, I'm a photographer. That's like the simple answer because I don't want to go into a deep dive. But really... When people do ask me, I tell them I made a decision when I when I started Big Head Taco that I will I will not make a living by selling prints. I will not make a living by taking on commercial work. I've taken off. I've I've done commercial work 
only as experiments, meaning I've taken on jobs that I wanted to do uh, because I want to test a certain concept that I think would work. One of it was uh, taking pictures of wedding dresses, but I wanted to do the whole project mobile. So I, I only use my iPhone. I, I processed and edited everything on my iPhone, and then I uploaded everything to a cloud service, and then I delivered the products to the customer through a link. And this is like in 2014, I think. And the transaction was done all mobile. So I thought as an experiment, can a photographer do something completely mobile from their iPhone, you know, the entire transaction, everything. And I did all that at a coffee shop and about an hour after the shoot. And so I did that again as an experiment. And then I think I wrote an article on my blog about, about that experiment that I'd done. And I've done other projects like that where I did it for myself for fun. It wasn't for them. And in fact, I didn't even get paid for it. Uh, the, the, the wedding dress designer designed, not a wedding dress, but designed a dress for my wife. Because I said, you know, she said, what is this job worth? And I said, 800 bucks. And I said, and then she goes, what can I do back? I said, well, make me an $800 dress for my wife. And that was the exchange that I did. Because again, I didn't care about the money. I cared about the process and see if I can pull it off. And so I've done projects like that. I've donated prints to different charities, but I've never, you know, I, 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 am, I do want to create a zine. I do want to do certain things, but you can see I've made an effort not to sell prints. And I made an effort not to do commercial projects because in that sense, I'm not a real photographer. I don't take pictures for money. I mean, I don't know if making money defines a, a real photographer. Um, more often, I, I, as I mentioned before, I meet photographers that actually seek to, to, to realize their concepts rather than be totally soaked up in, in commercial work. Now, you mentioned you did wedding, you did sports, and then when Big Head Taco came along, it became uh, street photography. How, how did that happen? I think street photography, like even before, I would say when I was shooting, it was kind of under most people's radar, you know, unless you were really, it was a really, really, now you say street photography and, you know, your grandma, your grandpa kind of knows what you're talking about. It's like, oh, you mean black and white pictures of people on, you know, in the, in the city. And so um, back in the, in the 90s and 2000 mainstream didn't weren't really aware of it i wasn't really aware of it either but i was taking pictures of random people on the street which felt really weird to me at the time and uh, when i started doing big head taco reviewing camera gear it made sense not to be overly elaborate setting up a shoot hiring a model renting a car you know driving up to whistler with mountains in the back the production value it just seemed too high for an article for on a website that I hadn't even monetized yet. And so it had to be cheap, dirty, and easy. And the, and the easiest way is, is basically to just walk out your front door and whatever you see is, is, and so even, you know, I, I think I even removed the word street from everything, like from Twitter, from Instagram. I used to say street photographer from makeover. I removed the term street because it, 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 it's so generic now. I'd rather just see photographer because when I take a picture of something else that isn't considered street, some people were calling me out on it saying, hey, that's not street. And it's like, well, I'm not a street photographer. I don't really care what, what you want to call it. And so um, it was just the easiest way to, to take pictures of 
just roaming around and not having to set anything up. And so I think it happened to me, it happened very organically, especially when I started reviewing camera gear. Now, what's interesting to me is me having, uh, having uh, started to shoot about five years ago on street. And uh, I feel this kind of stigma today in the name of street photography. How do you see that as somebody who's following this for a long time? What's your take on, 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 on the state of, of street photography, the popularity of the genre, the way it's like treated and the different things that develop out of it. How do you look at that? I see like any any trend, th there are those that will do it because it's trendy. And I think most people won't survive in it because once they get tired of it, they'll just move on. And to me, I don't mind because I guess for me, I've always been the kind of guy that once something becomes popular, I don't want to do it anymore. And maybe that's why another reason why I dropped the term street, because it's just it, to me, in a way, it's become cliche to say, oh, I'm a street photographer. It doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore, especially those that are really into it or, you know, like who who are still really passionate, which I am about taking pictures on the street, but I don't want to call it street photography anymore, although I don't really know what to call it um i would use i, I started using the the you know the there's a thing called the diffusion of innovation cycle about uh the uh, the adoption of innovation and what the life cycle is and it kind of goes through like the innovators the early adopters the early majority the late majority and the laggards and that's like often used in fashion trends so you know like let's just say there's a brand that's really cool that all the cool kids are wearing eventually when it makes it to walmart the cool kids don't want to wear it anymore right and so likewise street photography has gotten to a point where now your grandma and your and your uncle louis are doing street photography and the innovators the guys that were kind of and the early adopters you know they, they want to move on to something so i think they are pushing the boundaries of what street photography is. And I look up to uh, one photographer, he's from Singapore. He was an ex-photographer, um, at Ben Chia. I'm not sure if you've heard of him mm -hmm. before. Yes. Yeah, so he's from Singapore. He he walked away from the X program, not because he had a problem with Fujifilm, but he felt like he wanted to make room for other photographers. And I know for a fact that other major manufacturers sweeped in to try to try to make them him their ambassador and he actually said no at this point i don't want any ambassadorship i just kind of want to do what i want to do so thank you but no thank you which to me shows his level of integrity as well as his level of um of transparency meaning um he didn't leave the x program for any other reason other than just you know like i just want to do i want to make room for other people but i also want to do my own thing and so someone like akban cha I look up to him as a leader in street photography, as figuring out where, where the trends are going. And I think there are a few of them out there that I look up to because I don't consider myself an innovator, just like the, the big head taco name. I didn't invent that, but I consider myself an early adopter. Uh, uh, I see things early and I jump onto it. So I think I wasn't the first guy on Instagram, but amongst my my peers who thought I was nuts to jump on Instagram instead of, uh, you know, 500 pics or do Flickr, they said real photographers aren't on Instagram. And I said, but I like Instagram. And even when I started shooting YouTube videos, a lot of guys are like, why are you wasting your time doing YouTube? You should be getting jobs and making money. Or if you do, you, if you do videos, you should be on Vimeo because that's where the artists are. You know, artists aren't on YouTube. And I said, no, I think this is where I should be. And even when uh, Love first approached me, um, I said, you know what? I kind of like this concept. I'm all in. And I promised 
uh, Tomas that I will I will faithfully write an article every month. Um, it's not about the money. It's about being on this platform, uh, share. And I knew Fuji would grow, and I felt that he was there at the right time at the right place. So I jumped on. And so going all the way back to the idea of being an early adopter, I, I am looking uh, all the time for talent that are pushing the boundaries of what we consider street photography and whatever direction they go, I will kind of shift with them. But right now I don't see a lot of innovators right now in street photography. I see a lot of stuff being recycled by innovation. Uh, I, I don't see a lot of it. I see a lot of things being very repetitive. And as you mentioned, very cliche, but there's also a thing like the counter cycle, which is, if Walmart then finally also drops the trendy fashion, that's actually when the, the, the innovators get back in because you become an early adopter again when the trend has been like wrenched out and is finally over. So I'm kind of hoping to a degree that this happens and that things get a little bit calm again and kind of a new thing will build up. Uh, might maybe also just worth to, to like kind of hang in there and wait until the popularity fades away. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and just like, you know, how rap eventually became this culture of hip hop and is there, you know, and then now there's this fusion, right? Of like, it's hard to call things certain things because they're all starting to fuse. And that's why in my article, when I did the, the uh, tableau, with street kind of that that sort of that fusion of, of 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 orchestrated with randomness that was part of my desire to look for something beyond typical street photography and that's why i shoot film and i shoot mobile and i shoot digital and i shoot instant because each platform there's a certain feel there's a certain color or sound, I'm not sure if I'm articulating myself, but there's a mood to each one and each, even changing cameras will change the way you shoot and the way you see things. So going from a rangefinder to uh, an SLR, going from film to digital, going from film to instant. And so I'm in all these fields because I don't know where the next trend or the next major shift is gonna be. So I kind of want my hands in everything, including writing, you know, writing, um, music, podcasting. I want to be in everything. So when things start shifting as an early adopter, I think I can see the trend. And I know that podcasting is trending right now. And so people have been asking me, Taki, you should do podcasts. And that's another way that I think that even photography is moving where I think people turning to YouTube how-to videos, more and more photographers are now turning to podcasts and not wanting to learn technique anymore, but they want to know what's in the mind of the photographer. And I think that's actually a good way. I'm getting less and less questions about, Take, what are your settings versus, Take, how can I be inspired every day? And I think those questions will lead uh, into the future better than focusing so much on technique or style. Fully agree. I believe that uh, creativity and inspiration will become the assets of, of the future. That's how I see things currently. I really liked your article in the Fuji Love magazine called uh, Street Photography Meets the Photographic Tableau. Um, I agree with your approach that, I mean, you have to make something more out of street photography. And I believe that's your approach of kind of um, the evolution of your own street photography. How did this concept come together and where do you try to go with this? So in the article, I mentioned that, and this is where I was mentioning where it, it wasn't called street. I was doing this in like the mid nineties uh, with my wife, where I would see someone very interesting, but 
you know, I felt odd approaching them and asking them to take their picture. And I also didn't want my wife to be jealous because often it was in Japan and some girl dressed to the nines in whatever genre they were into, either if it was cosplay or, or made cafe style. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure what they're all called, but there's different subgenres in Japan of how girls dress, like in Harajuku versus Shibuya versus um, Ikebukuro, like, you know, all these different districts. And so I would just pose my wife sort of close to them and then get my wife. And then I think as a joke, she would overly pose or pose like the girls. And then I would pretend I'm shooting my wife, which I was, um, but as well trying to get this other person into the picture. And sometimes the way I set it up, they would kind of notice or maybe they didn't and they would be staring at the camera and I would get these really weird kind of like, my wife is posing and this girl's looking at, at the camera going like, what the heck is this guy doing? And I thought that was kind of funny. And then so over the years, my wife sort of played along and and would just pose funny for me wherever we went. And, you know, I would do the proper pose with her. And then eventually like, hey, look at that guy there. I want you to pose next to him. So she would walk over, pose next to him. And then I started doing that with my friends. I was out and about walking. Um, and actually even going further back as kids, you know, film was expensive. And so when my father wanted to do these proper portraits of me and my five siblings and my mom and with my grandmother or with my cousins in front of some monument in Japan, you know, we wanted, he wanted these proper faces of us smiling, but one of us would always do a stupid face or some silly pose or something like that. And we knew that the pictures won't be processed for the next month or two. And we knew that we would get the beats two months later. My dad would see it. It was like, what? What are you doing? But we would do this game where one of us would do some silly pose. And, and so posing silly was something I always loved doing in, in photography and something my dad did not want us to do. So by the time I had my own camera, posing people, making them do silly poses, silly faces, dramatic po postures. And that's really the, the photographic tableau, right? It's just like over, over posing, sort of larger than life sort of thing. So that came from even from my early childhood. So when I'm out and about now with my photography friends, I kind of get a sense of who they are and, and how far they are willing to pose for me. And then I use that. I don't want them to be outside of the comfort zone. And so now I have gotten to a point where now I can even get strangers to pose for me, get them to do a photographic tableau and then pose them in a spot where I know there's high traffic. And uh, I'm having fun hunting down random strangers who are willing to pose for me, but in, the, in, in a photographic tableau style, and then try to get someone interesting to walk into the frame. So I have a lot of fun doing it. And I'm going to, I think I'm, this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And maybe that's something I'll be known for in the future. Hello, this is Jens Krauer here with you. This episode of the Fujilove podcast is sponsored by Exposure X3, the advanced photo editor and organizer from Alien Skin Software. Exposure handles every stage of your Fujifilm RAW workflow. You can copy, call, edit and retouch and then export and print your images. Superb RAW processing quality and many creative effects make Exposure the best choice for creating beautiful images. Visit alienskin.com to try it for free today and discover for yourself. You will receive a free upgrade to Exposure X4, the latest version of Exposure that is coming soon. Yeah, I was about to ask, that's, what, is, what, is it, what is it going to be? Are you looking for a, a, a collection of 50 of those images? Is it going to be a book? Uh, how, what, how is this going to take shape and form in the long term? Um, 
that's where I probably need a manager or, or an agent or someone like my wife to, because, you know, I, I have, you know, 25, 30, 40 years of pictures. I have pictures since I was a kid that I've taken. And a lot of people are like, hey, you should do a, a thing of Hong Kong at night. Hey, Taki, you should do a book on this. I could probably do it. I'm just too lazy to to put anything together. So I think maybe a zine is something I will I will start. And I think maybe as well, that's kind of how Fuji Love has put me on a regular schedule. You know, uh, Tomas is like, Taki, you have the first article of the month in general. You know, please make sure you, you come up with a new concept, a new idea. And it's forcing me to, to package my pictures, not just a one-off on Instagram, but, you know, a theme, five to eight pictures that all kind of connect and there's a theme to it. And I I need someone from the outside, I think, to really force me to to think longer term. So I have enough content that I could probably come up with multiple books on multiple subjects. And I think the photographic tableau meets street photography, which I should really shrink that and come up with a, a shorter street tableau. Maybe that's the term to use. Um, that might be something that I might. And like I might end up being known most for, and I should probably think about doing uh, something beyond an article on a website, but something like a book or a zine. I don't know. Maybe Tomash can help me on that. Might be. I'm very convinced that you, if you really have a concept and you do photographic work, it should take some kind of a physical form that is meant to last for long, because a lot of pictures just very quickly disappear. As we just talk about this, what's your take on on or speaking of? images that disappear quickly what's your take on on social media the social media these days for photographers i think photographers should first of all understand like social media is a tool like anything else and you need to know why you're using that tool so i knew right off the bat when i started instagram and youtube and my blog and i started writing for for tomage why i'm doing these things none of them were for money they were all for attention but very specific types of attention. So for uh, Instagram, it's to prove to people that I am a proper photographer. Uh, some people use Instagram as just another uh, attention-getting tool, which is fine. You know, there are, you know, like look at Lindsay Lohan. She's not a photographer. She is a, if I can even say, an infamous, uh, uh, you know, celebrity. And, the, you know, she has, I don't know how many followers she has, maybe a million followers. She's not known for photography, but she uses it as a tool for her, as a publicity tool. The pictures aren't that great, but, you know, she gets tens of thousands of likes and she has millions of followers. And that's great for her. She knows, at least I think she knows why she's using it. So as a photographer, if you, you know, like, why are you using it? You know, what is the end goal? So let's just say you're a photographer and you have 100,000 followers. Well, what can you do with it? Because I've had a lot of photographers, a lot of them are young, meaning they're talented photographers, but they're in college. And on the side, they realize, wow, I have a knack for photography and I have 200,000 followers. And yet I, at the time, I had like 900 followers to 1,000 followers and I was doing collaborations with brands and they had no idea um, how to do that. They're like, wow, because one of the early projects I did was with this shoe brand called the uh, Fluvogs. And I had 900 followers at the time and I approached them and I said, hey, I would love to do this project called Street Vogs. And I even came up with that name for them. So they have an account called at Street Vogs. And I said, I want to feature a street photographer in every city where there's a Fluvog store and I want it based around the store. 
And they said, great idea. Can you help curate it and find the next few photographers? And I was surprised that a lot of these photographers, they've never done brand collaborations. And I told them like, hey, all you get is a free pair of shoes, but don't worry about the shoes. Worry about the fact you know, like that you're working with a cool brand. And if that brand works with who you are as a street photographer, and I think it would because Fluvog makes really weird kind of outside of the mainstream type shoes. And I said, that's a great brand you can collaborate with. And maybe in the future, you could do more projects with them. But uh, for, you know, and, and it's great to have these free shoes, but collaborate with brands that you love and use it as a network to grow your brand, to do more collaborations and, and then it could lead to bigger and better things. And so that's where I think each photographer needs to know, like, why are you on YouTube? For What is your end goal? Why are you on Instagram? Why are you doing podcasts? And so I make a decision every time uh, why I'm doing anything, including, and I, I guess you can consider podcasting social media. And right now this is, I'm doing this podcast for Fujilove because I, I'm committed to this platform. I'm committed to this online magazine. And I want, people that follow me and want to understand me to be able to consume my content within this context, because I've done podcasts a lot. Often it has to do with film photography. And I know a lot of Fuji love followers might not find those podcasts. And so I thought it'd be good for me to speak on this platform. So I think they need to know why they're doing it. And if Instagram disappears, if YouTube disappears, I don't really care. I'll just move on to the next tool that I want to use uh, for me to grow my brand. Very, very true. I think purpose is, is something that is very underrated in, in photography. And uh, on social media, I think you need a purpose to be seen because otherwise you're just kind of disappearing in the noise. Um, also, speaking of social media, how, how do you deal with the downsides of this? We briefly touched this before we started recording. But uh, if you're, I mean, with the, let's say with recognition or more people watching you, there also come people that might, might disagree with you or that troll you. What is your, um, bucket of experience with those kind of things? I guess I've always had thick skin growing up and I actually like debating and arguing. My father, although he wanted me to be a doctor, he thought, Take, you talk a lot and you like to argue, not argue as in fight, but I love debating. So even if I pick the opposite of what I actually think and think, hmm, what if I pick the opposite side and argue their point from their perspective? And so for me, I don't mind good, solid debates, but I don't like wasting my time either. So if the platform calls for a debate, uh, then I think it's fine. Uh, but in terms of trolls and the negative side, I don't really care what other people think. If they troll me, I don't. I just delete them immediately. I block them right away. Um, I don't waste time because in the end, I have my reason why I'm on this platform and it's not to argue with people. Like for instance, Instagram, so I'm not there to argue. I'm there to showcase my photography. So I don't show cat pictures. You know, I have about eight to 10 Instagram accounts. Big Head Taco is my main one, but I have a personal one that's public and then have a really private one for family and friends. And then I have all these secret little side projects that I have some unofficial patreon because i don't have official patreon but i have unofficial donors that i have a special account for that i would share special videos and stuff that they know who they are and i give them free stuff that i never do these contests where it's like follow me and i'll give you a free strap like no i give stuff away all the time but it's all invisible because i'm not using it as a tool to gain followers 
But um, on the main platform, Big Head Taco, it's there to showcase myself as a photographer. And same as YouTube, often it's about the culture of photography and then as well as photo reviews. And I just don't waste time on them because, you know, I only have a certain amount of time in my life. And to waste my time arguing with people that just want to argue, um, I say don't care about what other people think. And that's easy to say, I know. But it's as easy as like, I actually love YouTube. You can mute people, meaning they can write a nasty comment if they wish. They don't realize that nobody can see it except them. And so I actually, I love YouTube because they have these mean guys that are constantly, I know that they're commenting because I can see that there's physically five comments on the YouTube video at a certain point, but it shows like there's actually 10 comments, which means there's five that are muted that nobody sees, including myself. I don't actually see it. And so I, I kind of smile thinking, hey, these idiots still think that that everyone can see. And they're wondering why, as mean as they are, no one is replying. It's because they're completely muted. So I say just uh, who cares about the, the trolls and just do what you do and, you know, do with with a, a sort of a business sense. Do it professionally. Like if you work at a retail store and someone comes in and, and if they're bad or if they're mean or if they're rude, you know, deal with it professionally. But if there's a certain point where you have to kick them out, do so, but as well do it in a dignified, in an honorable way that as you would if you were a business person. And I think that's something maybe I've learned with age because I'm older. I know if you're younger, maybe you're going to college and perhaps, you know, you've worked retail, but not in a management role, you start realizing like, you know, you don't burn too many bridges because one day you might run into these people. And so even with, with professional trolls, meaning they have their own accounts and they have their own following and they're sitting there trolling you, you know, learn to deal with them in a dignified way where, you know, you learn to walk away. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't fuel the fire um, because there's nothing good is going to happen. So, you know, I mean, dealing with these things in a dignified way makes a lot of sense and also just blocking out noise. I also want to touch a point that I saw in an interview with you a long time ago. And as I look at your Instagram account right now, you still seem to follow this policy of continuously following 50 people. Can you elaborate on that? What's the fault behind that? It is my online gallery of my work. I realized that if I want people to see myself as not a YouTuber, but as a photographer, I need a platform that will give me the largest audience. And so I don't, I don't consume inside Big Head Taco. It's a, it's a projection tool outwards. So I consume other people's images on another account, you know, my personal, which is called Chatographer. So that's another, that's my personal, but it's a personal slash public account. And on that account, I follow family, I follow friends, I follow colleagues, but on Big Head Taco, I want people to follow me and like, wow, I like his style. I wonder who he is inspired by. I wonder who he is influenced by. And sometimes people do ask me like, hey, Taki, who who do you like? Who are you inspired by? And I say, look at my top 50. Those are the top 50 people that I follow I consume a certain percentage on, on, on Big Head Taco, but when I'm in Big Head Taco, I have the Big Head Taco hat on. And it's like, as a creative, these are the top 50 people that influence me um, on a daily basis. That so when the first thing I wake up and the last thing I see before I go to bed, these are the people that make me go, dang, I have to work harder. Or like, man, that's a cool concept. I, I need to find a way of reinterpreting that in my own style and embed it into my own photography because I follow um, quite an eclectic 
wide range. Like I follow someone who's a cook. I follow a, a kid in Japan who juggles. I follow a group of girls in Japan that does the um, the uh, kendama, you know, that little hammer with the little ball on a string. And um, I follow a wide, and they're not they're not all photographers. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And I follow a girl in in Russia. I follow a guy in Russia. You know, so I follow very uh, quite a wide eclectic group of creatives and storytellers, and all of them inspire me in one way or another. And so, if someone says Take, who are your top whatever? It's like it's easy. Just look at my top fifty, and so I keep it a tight fifty. And when I want to add a new person, I have to remove another one. And that's I've just created that as a policy for myself. And I think fifty is a maximum that I want to follow on Big Ed Taco. I want those that influence me, I want to keep that as minimal as possible to make sure that my own voice stays strong. Because if I spend too much time consuming, then, you know, no one is that strong. Like someone who says advertising doesn't affect me, then they're an idiot because it affects everyone. It's a matter of understanding that it does affect you. So to keep it to a minimum. And so likewise for me as a creative, I'm not a moron. I know that the more I consume, the more I'm in infected influence by other people so if i could keep that to a minimum when i'm wearing the big hat taco hat then that's better for me and my own photography because it keeps my voice strong so if you want to know who inspires Toki, just uh, check him out on instagram and uh, check out the 50 people he follows it's it's actually quite an interesting group i totally agree with that Having spoken um, your history, street photography, social media, etc., let's talk gear as we are on the Fuji Love podcast. Um, I realized while reading your article in the Fuji Love magazine that you shoot a very wide variety of cameras. Uh, alone in the article, we find images with the XT2, the GFX, the X70, the XF10, and the XH1. Do you switch your cameras as they come along, or you have a, a current favorite? Yeah, you know, that's one thing that I try to um, be diplomatic about, you know, especially on, on this platform, because, you know, I, I, I love Fujifilm, but I also love Leica. Those are my two current brands, because, you know, I, I have more film cameras than I do have digital cameras, and I'm a huge film camera uh, addict, uh, collector. And so, uh, but when it comes to digital photography, Definitely, I don't think there's anyone better than Fujifilm and, and Leica at this time. Everything from the color science to the lenses to their design ergonomic uh, philosophy, I'm all in. Uh, especially, and I think because I am a film photographer, the way that Fujifilm designs it, you could tell it's designed by guys that grew up shooting film or at least have a passion for film photography. Because I think just like car guys, eventually they discover the cars from the 50s and 60s and they have this love for it and when when a when a new car kind of does an homage to an older car even if it's a subtle thing like a certain line and it's like oh wow they're they're quoting an sl mercedes-benz from the 50s or wow they're quoting a fastback uh, corvette or something like that you know like you understand that and so there's a certain history to camera design there's a history to photography and i think fujifilm and Leica have this legacy uh, fujifilm might not be famous in the digital realm in terms of uh photography uh digital cameras that long because the x series started what like in 2011 with the um x100 so you know they got a seven-year history that's not that long but they have a huge 
film camera history and then their their design and innovation is so long that you know if someone said what is your favorite fuji film camera it, i'd probably pick a, a film camera but when it comes to digital again it comes down to the series and i would say definitely the x100 series is it's not necessarily my favorite uh, it might be i haven't thought about it yet but their best series they have created is the x100 uh, in terms of de design philosophy, in terms of uh, even the idea of having a leaf shutter. I love daylight flash syncing and having a leaf shutter and be able to flash sync at one four thousandth, one two thousandth of a second is just at, at low flash power as well is a very powerful tool because I love the Ricoh GR and that also has a leaf shutter. And so, you know, if I had to choose between the Ricoh GR and the Fuji X100, <laughs> I would probably lean towards the Ricoh and, and, you know, and, but that's for, I think for personal reasons, I shot with the Ricoh GR1 film camera and I bought it back in 98. And I think it's more of a nostalgic thing and a little bit in terms of ergonomics, because it's much smaller. Um, my current tool. So let's just talk about tools. So as a, as a, as a tool for me, as a YouTuber, as a photographer, as an Instagrammer, um, as a camera gear reviewer, the best tool that I have for me right now is the X-H1. It's the best balanced tool for what I do right now. Although the X-T3 is a very close second. And, and really what the distinguishing feature between the two, it, it really is IBIS. It's the in-body stabilization in the X-H1. I do a lot of video B-roll and I don't like the, um, the stabilized the optically stabilized lenses as much as the IBIS in the X-H1. So I use the, uh, the XF20, I use the Fujicrons, the XF23, 35, and the 50. And those three primes, I do a lot of B-roll. I can't do that with the X-T3. I, I need it stabilized unless I have a tripod and I don't want to carry tripod because I'm lazy. And I already carry a lot of gear with me when I review because I'm, you know, I'm writing articles for Fujila, but as well as for myself, I'm working on videos. So sometimes I have five or six cameras on me. So I need one camera that does everything. And the X-H1 does everything for me. And so right now as a tool, my favorite not just Fujifilm camera, but my favorite camera for me as a brand, as a tool, is definitely the X-H1. Because I was about to ask you what you think about the X-T3, but I guess we heard that you're rather looking forward to the X-H2 with the technology of the X-T3. No, actually, I would actually think the reverse. Um, I want the X... I want the X-T3 S or the X-T4, whatever they're going to call it. I think they're going to do... so. I can really see that the XT series is what they're going to update the most often, it feels like. Like the X-Pro2, for the X-Pro3, I think they're waiting for something big. And my guess is that it is that organic sensor that they've been working with Panasonic with since 2013, I think. And they need something that's going to be an end of it. Like, I don't see the X-Pro3 following the X-T3. I think Fujifilm wants to put something in the X-Pro3 to make it a flagship. And to do that, they can't just put the same sensor and processor and just say, well, this has a, a hybrid viewfinder. And to do that, I would personally be very disappointed. And so if the X-Pro3 shows up late in you know, like say uh, 20, uh, 2019 first quarter, I'm okay with it if they're waiting for that organic 
sensor to be different than the X-T3 or waiting for Fujifilm to miniaturize the IBIS. Because I've, I've spoken to Billy, and this is back in, I think, January or February, and he had mentioned that, that the IBIS is built ground up. Nobody helped them. They could have approached Olympus or Sony or somebody else to build it for them or buy the technology, but Fujifilm decided to make it ground up. And because of that, it, they couldn't miniaturize it quick enough. So that's why the X-H1 is the size that it is. They said the only reason why it's big is because the IBIS is big and they couldn't miniaturize it. And right now, currently, Fujifilm is trying to make it smaller. And they couldn't make it smaller fast enough for it to fit into X-T3. And that's the only reason why. People are like, oh, why did they purposely leave it out of the X-T3? Because they couldn't miniaturize it fast enough. I think by either the end of the year or first quarter 2019, they would have miniaturized it small enough that it will fit into an XT or an X Pro size body. And so we will probably see IBIS in um, in a smaller form factor and maybe even in the uh, GFX 50R. If if Because in terms of size, you know, it's already big. So I think it can handle it in the R, but uh, more so I think X Pro 3, XT4, XT3S or whatever they want to call it. Um, and then eventually make its way down into the the XE3 series, so whatever they're going to call that, XE3S or XE, XE4, the XT30, whatever it is, you'll see it probably in about a year, a year and a half. Well, the big question is, and I know Tomas is, uh, is equally uh, really curious about this question, is there even going to be an X-Pro3 series? I think that they will have to. Because just like the X100 series, uh, the X-Pro, I think even the fact that the name Pro is in it, they would need to. But that's why they can take their time. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago where Fujifilm admitted that their, um, their philosophy behind their camera cycles of when the next camera coming out will model that of Leica versus, say, Sony or Canon, where... Uh, more so Sony, where like no updates, no firmware updates, just they just to fix it, they just come up with a new camera um, that they don't mind waiting an extra year or two uh, and then just update with firmware as the technology allows for it. And they've proven that over the years. And so if we have to wait an extra year for the X-Pro3 to come out with a organic sensor, with IBIS and with some other cool innovations, um, that's fine. And the X-Pro2 did that. It waited a little bit longer than it should have. And I was told at the time that it was because they were waiting for that organic sensor. And when they realized it wouldn't be ready on time, they had to approach Sony to help them to design the X-Trans 3. So they used the same CMOS sensor that was in the, I think at the time, the uh, the A6300 and the 6500, but with the architecture of the, the color filter array, the X-Trans color filter array. So Sony builds it for them using Fujifilm specs, right? So they're, they're contracted out to do so. And so with this collaboration with Panasonic, I think that would make the most sense for Fujifilm to put that organic. And I think that's what the new full frame Panasonic that's going to be coming out. I think that's what, because there's talking about 4K 60 frames per second on a full frame sensor. And I think that's where that global shutter and that uh, 60, uh, 4K 60 frames per second is, is capable on this new uh, sensor. And everyone's talking about Panasonic doing it, but really it's a collaboration of Fujifilm. And if Fujifilm takes it, they're going to put it into this APS-C uh, system. And that's going to 
make this huge leap, I think, for Fujifilm and sensor technology. Well, interesting things to look forward. You mentioned the the 50R. We'll, I think we'll see in, yeah, very shortly, we will know the exact details of that camera. It should be next week. Uh, I think at Photokino, it will be revealed as far as I know. Yeah, probably just the, the prototype, the mock-up will be ready by that time, I think. Probably, but it will be interesting. We'll see how this goes. It's always exciting. I love the, the philosophy of Fuji, how they push things uh, forward. So usually when they bring a new series, it's quite exciting. As you are a very busy man, and we know you on many platforms, uh, you do a lot of things. What are, what should we look out for in the next months or year that uh, we should know about uh, in terms of your activities? Um, <laughs> I, I, I do compartmentalize everything I do, including, as I mentioned, I don't want people on YouTube to follow me on Instagram just because they follow me on YouTube. Like, you know, like I want my Instagram to stand on its own without me having YouTube. So if I quit YouTube, I want Instagram to be on its own and vice versa. Uh, so if I'm not using Instagram, I'm be using some other platform. I don't see another platform where you share your photos. That's more powerful than Instagram. So that's going to be where I'm going to be showcasing the majority of my work where I want to get as much critical mass. But as you mentioned, I should move towards print. And I do print almost all my work, especially my film photography work. I, I have stacks of it here in my studio. I wish I could show you, but I, I'm horrible at putting things into albums. Usually for the past 20 years, my wife has albumed all my pictures. I would go to a lab, get tons of pictures, and then leave it in the envelope. My wife would grab it, buy albums, shove it in for me, label it, and she's fantastic for that. But I know I need to think more about print. So look forward to zines, look forward to maybe a photo book, uh, it just takes time and, and effort to do that. And because, as you mentioned, I'm on many different platforms, um, it's hard for me to, to make the time to do that. As well, I am transitioning towards, uh, I, am I am experimenting with television right now. I'm currently shooting a, a pilot TV show where I am being featured as a photographer. And it's pilot. So if the show doesn't get picked up, then it doesn't get picked up. And that's actually taken up a lot of my time, about 70% of my time. And so a lot of my output has been uh, hindered by that. Because uh, what I'm trying to do is, to me, my, num my number one priority is attention. I want to get as much attention as possible because with that attention, I could do a lot of things for the various communities that I'm passionate about, about film photography, about uh, even digital photography, street photography, Fuji love. And if I get a lot of attention from a different platform that I'm not used to, which is mainstream television, I can grab that attention and point it towards uh, other things that I'm into. And so I'm hoping that that will happen. And so maybe look out for the next year or so. Uh, you might see me on mainstream, not only regular tele television, but uh, actually streaming services like Net, like Netflix, HBO, Discovery. Uh, I don't know what else. I don't watch TV, so I don't know what else is out there. But uh, yeah, I'm hoping to, to, to break into that soon. Big Head Taco is going uh, global TV. Congrats on that. I fingers crossed that they actually pick it up. I wish this would happen. I would sure watch it. As we close in to the end of this podcast, is there any message or words you want to share with the Fujilove community? Yeah, I would say that um, that photography is bigger than than all of us. It's bigger than Fujilove. It's bigger than a brand. It's bigger than 
than anything. You know, like people, you know, before photography was painting, you know, and before painting, it was people drawing on walls of caves and on pieces of leather hide. Like the people, the need to draw, the need to capture what they see that's in front of them is, is such a, you know, it, it's right up there with music and other art forms, even cooking. And so I think when people focus too much on gear, and I know Tomas even said to me, like, Taka, I love your gear reviews, but I love think pieces more. And I don't want my website to only be about gear. And, you know, that that was actually not, not a wake up call. But in a way, I saw myself as, hey, I'm the gear guy for Fuji Love. And, and Tomas said, actually, no. You know, like I actually like it when you don't write about gear at times, although he knows that I get gear early. And so it's great that I get access to things early. And so he says, Taki, I love it when you write things outside of that. So, you know, I even I needed to reset my own brain. So people shouldn't get so worked up on gear. I love it when guys say I still shoot with an XE1. That's like, oh, that's fantastic. And they're like, I love my XE1. It's like, that's great. You know, should I upgrade? It's like, no, not if you don't need to or not unless you have to, but uh, if you're happy with it, just stick with it. So um, I think focusing on your photography, focusing on your expression, your storytelling, grouping images together so they all connect. And I think one way to do that is actually starting your own blog or your website and posting your pictures and writing a story behind why you took the pictures and then putting yourself out there saying, in my next article, I'm going to explore this further. And now you're on the hook, right? Like people are like, oh, wow, he said he's going to write another article. I'm waiting for it. Now you're forced to do that. So I think doing that, I think for all photographers, I think that's really important to be able to take pictures and tell stories uh, at the same time and, and doing podcasts. Man, I could, uh, just as you mentioned this, I mean, photography being a creative discipline rather than a technical discipline. I think I could go talk to you for another hour about that. But uh, unfortunately, we have to end at this point. I want to really thank you for uh, being a guest on this podcast. As you mentioned before, you're on many platforms. I figured out that BigHeadTaco.com is a good place to get an overview over all your activities. If you guys look out for things Taco writes, records, and uh, tells us, always also check out the Fujilov magazine and Fujilov.com, where we have uh, Taco as a regular guest and a highly appreciated guest. That Taco, thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, thank you so much for talking. I know, I know it's a Friday night for you. It's a Friday morning for me. So <laughs> thanks for giving up your Friday night for me. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, getting ready in the morning. And I'm sure we hear, read and talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks again.